Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. Let's pray once again before we look at God's word. God Almighty, we love your word. And hearing that testimony this morning of a young man first thinking it was boring to sit around and study, to to grow and embrace the word and, and to love redemptive history, May we also grow to love your word more and more, and your church more and more. For Christ's sake, amen. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 6 are a a launching point for today's subject, and that is right and wrong anxiety. Right and wrong anxiety. Um, I was reading um, a pamphlet this week uh, that speaks of a woman who visited her, her doctor and told him that she wasn't feeling like herself. She's feeling run down. And after listening to this woman describe her many symptoms, And then examining her, her doctor replied, Ma'am, it's my expert opinion that you're not run down, but you are all wound up, tied up in the knots of anxiety. Proverbs 12.25 says that Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. Worry or anxiety is a thing we give ourselves to in order to feel more in control of a situation in which we have no control. No control. It's useless... Anxiety, that is, it's useless um, to provide an iota of control. In Matthew 6, verse 27, our Lord said, And who of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? In other words, you cannot worry out another year of life. Worry um, is a lot of work for nothing. Anxiety spends. 
It spends energy, mental and emotional energy, with no return. There's no, no benefits with regard to anxiety. It doesn't do a single thing except depress you and discourage those around you. Now, those words of Jesus about anxiety come from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and those words about anxiety follow what he said in teaching his disciples how to pray. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then he goes on to say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Emotions re reflect what's happening in our hearts. And characteristically, um, they reveal what is most important to us, that which we treasure. Who or what we love above all else is who or what we worship. Who or what we love above all else is who or what we worship, and who or what we worship controls us. That's why idolatry is such a problem for God's people. We become like our idol. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Pretty soon, we cannot see reality for what it is. We lose sight of what is so important. So I want to pose a question this morning from the outset. Um, what do your emotions reveal to be most important to you? Again, what do your emotions reveal to be most important to you? Now, Paul's main theme in his letter to the Philippians is the repeated exhortation to rejoice. As the words for rejoice and joy um, occur over a dozen times in this very brief epistle. And it was written to a people who were experiencing a difficult season of persecution from Roman pagans and Judaizers. Now, you remember that from our study in Acts, specifically chapter 16. They were facing opposition from without, opposition from within. And in verse 6, here in his letter to the Philippians, we have an imperative, a command. To not be anxious about anything. Anxiety. Anxiety is defined as a, a feeling of worry or unease. An imminent, an, imminent, an imminent event with uncertain outcome. Or a strong desire for something accompanied by a fear of not receiving it. Anxiety. Now, the question is, um, is this command, be anxious for nothing, is this absolute or is there context for the Christian life? Okay, turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, having spent many weeks in the latter chapters 
of Acts, we've been following the Apostle Paul who wrote this command. Be anxious for nothing. And, and Paul, who writes to the Philippians, um, also wrote to the Corinthians. And here in chapter 11, you see in verses 23 to 27, a list, of, a list of trials and tribulations that Paul faced. And then he goes on in verse 28 and he says, look, apart from these external things, okay, that is imprisonments, lashes, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, drifting at sea, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, cold and exposures, um, dangers from everyone everywhere, apart from external things, verse 28, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Or as the NASB has it, concern. It's the same Greek word that we have for anxiety. A daily pressure is on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, there is... Almost in every way that God has wired you, every way that he's wired you, almost there is a positive way and a negative way in which we may think, feel, and act, right? Scripture commands us to be angry, amen? Be angry, but, but do not sin. Most of my anger is sinful. So we, we understand there is um, righteous anger, there is sinful anger. Um, we, we also are called to think, that is, dwell on things worthy of praise. Not those things unworthy of praise. Matter of fact, in Philippians, back to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul exhorts us to, to remember the inevitable principle of the mind. Garbage in, garbage out. There is a right way to think. There is a wrong way to think for God's redeemed people. Now, that command, that, that, that imperative is for God's people. In response to the glorious indicatives, the facts with regard to to God's people, and that is by way of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are in an everlasting union with God through Christ. We are graced with a righteousness that comes from outside of us. You're declared free from all blame, all of your sins, they have been washed away. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. We have been sealed for eternal glory. Indicatives, facts. Now, as we struggle, in this present age, day by day, even a lifetime of suffering, as difficult as that may be to endure, is but a flash, a speck, considering our eternal state. Amen? Amen. Paul argues this throughout his epistles. So it is with those glorious gospel indicatives in mind that Paul now tells the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Now, a culture like ours, drowning in things which are false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, ugly, not commendable, but lacking excellence and and totally unworthy of praise, thus the warning for the church of Jesus Christ. Think on these things. There's a right way to think. There's a wrong way to think. And let me tell you, says Paul, basically, it is hard for you, Christian, to be able to rejoice as a believer when you wallow in unrepentant godlessness. And it all starts on the inside. The battle starts inside. How we think, what we dwell on. So for a Christian... Essentially, is Paul's argument for a Christian to surrender to ungodly thinking is like pouring gasoline on the embers of indwelling sin. We all have indwelling sin. It's like pouring gas on it, and it will ignite. And the Christian life for you will become an intense struggle. So therefore, Paul says, it starts on the inside. There's a right way to think, a godly way to think and a godless way to think. We are to have joy about the right things, not the wrong things. You ever had joy about the wrong things? My life as an unbeliever, my joy was filled with wrong things, but God, but God. We're to think about things that are praiseworthy, godly things, not godless things. Okay, now with with that said, we are also to have anxiety about the right things and not the wrong things. We are to have anxiety. Anxiety is actually a gift. Certain anxieties are a gift. Okay, we're, we're Californians. We've all likely have experienced an earthquake. Amen? Some good rumblers. As my children were growing up, we had some heavy ones. Uh, they were uh, the epicenter, I believe, was up in Los Angeles. But let me tell you this: uh, when, when it strikes, it causes immediate anxiety. And I didn't think, "Wow, this white, this one might take the house down." You know, I'm going to heaven, so what does it matter? No. I leaped up. I grabbed my wife. I grabbed my children, and, and we took cover, a response of intense anxiety. That's good anxiety, amen? That's a gift. Now, if you're a parent, and your son plays Little League, and you're in the bleachers, and they're, 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 it's the bottom of the ninth, there are two outs, he's at bat, the tying run is on third base, all he needs is a hit to win the game. Do you sit up there and go, I'm supposed to be anxious about nothing? (laughs) Do you? No, of course you're anxious. Or your daughter plays a piano recital. You're anxious out there. That's a gift. That's good anxiety. No parent lives like that without certain kinds of anxieties. 
So therefore, that being said, it's important for us this morning to distinguish between good anxiety and sinful anxiety that is to be dealt with. Now for Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, having been beaten, having been shipwrecked, those were not daily pressures, says Paul, that cause everyday anxiety. Those things come, those things go. But with regard to the churches, I have daily anxiety, says Paul. Daily anxiety. Friends, you are only anxious about things you care about. Emotions reveal what is most important to us. Paul has anxiety for the church. Look, look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, that is a pure bride. But I am afraid. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This is my concern. So his fear, his fear, a form of anxiety, is based on his longing for the Corinthians to remain loyal to Jesus, their Savior. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. All, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, all the T's are together the, towards the back of the Bible. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, Titus. So if you get to the T's, Thessalonians comes first. And here, 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. Or no, I am so sorry. 1st Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So here... Paul speaks well of the Thessalonians. He, he affirms and encourages them. He, he, you see this fatherly kind of affection. But nevertheless, he doesn't sit back and think, oh, no worries. Nothing to be concerned about. No, he has concern. His angst, his angst here comes from knowing that Satan seeks to devour God's people. He loves the church. Look at Romans 9, verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief. That's a form of anxiety. 
in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So here you have Paul, the great theologian and teacher of sovereign grace is not indifferent to the unbelief of his fellow Jews here. You see his concern? You see his anxiety? This is good anxiety. Healthy anxiety. Paul had a daily concern for the churches. Some were full of infighting and backbiting. That concerned him. Some were putting up with false teaching. That caused anxiety within him. On one end, you had people prone to legalism. And on the other end, you had people prone to antinomianism. And it stirred within him this anxiety. All the while, friends, all the while, Paul was bombarded by conflicting criticisms. He was accused of being too harsh. Accused of being too weak. He was compared negatively to the other apostles. They didn't like his preaching style, and quite frankly, many didn't like him. The one who risked his neck for them, the one who led them to Jesus Christ, and Paul loved the church. He loved the churches, and their struggles burdened him more than imprisonments and shipwreck. Ah, those were passing trials. But this one is daily. The church. Jesus loves his church. He loves his churches. Paul loves the church. Some churches in his epistles, he instructs because they're ignorant. They just don't know what they don't know. Others he confirms as he does to the Thessalonians, we just read. Some he rebukes and exhorts the Corinthians, as we shall see in coming weeks. He gives counsel to others, Colossians, Ephesians. And to the Galatians, there's a severe warning and a remedy in his letter. He loves the churches. Different churches, they had different problems, caused him all kinds of anxiety, knowing that people are, are easily led astray by false doctrine, misled by their own subjective moods and attitudes. And Paul, the teacher of sovereign grace, does not sit back idle and say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do with his church, so I'll just let go and let God. John Calvin said this, no one can have a heartfelt concern for the churches without being harassed with many difficulties. For the government of the church is no pleasant occupation. Satan from time to time giving us as much trouble as he can and leaving no stone unturned to annoy us, end quote. If you're a hyper-Calvinist, that makes no sense to you. In our doctrine, we're Calvinistic, not hyper-Calvinists. 
Hyper-Calvinists drive me as crazy as do Arminians. Because hyper-Calvinists do not have a proper doctrine with regard to human responsibility. You know, they'll say, you know, God is sovereign. So if the church is wandering from the truth, then she's going to wander from the truth. What's going to happen is, is going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. Que sera, sera. That's folly. They become incredibly indifferent to how people think, believe, act, and live, including themselves. Many of them find churches that kind of teach a, an infused sanctification by way of liturgy in the Lord's Supper. So to them, their Christian life exists simply of showing up on Sunday to receive this infused blessing. And the rest of the week, they're disengaged in how they feel, how they think, how they live. That's not biblical, that's heretical. A.W. Tozer said this, the more that true spirituality declines, the more an elaborate ritual comes to the forefront, end quote. So while we certainly believe in the sovereignty of God, we also believe that God calls us to commitment, devotion, and effort, which serves as a means to his, his, his end. Yes, God is sovereign. And all who will be saved will be saved in time according to God's sovereign grace, according to the elective purposes of God, but never are they saved apart from the faith. Amen? That is to be declared. Evangelism is the work of the Holy Spirit. We'd all agree with that? Evangelism, the work of the Holy Spirit, but never apart from the evangelist. How were they here without a preacher? So we go. We go into culture and we declare the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ because we love the church and we'd love to do the will of the church. We reach God's elect with the gospel, but we have no idea who his elect are. So we declare it to, to everyone. To everyone. Now consider our culture. Okay? Follow me. I'm, 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 I have a goal in mind here. Consider our culture and the propaganda today to convince people that certain sins that used to be considered perversions and used to be considered unnatural, they declare today are very normal and natural. Romans 1 verse 24 tells us that when God turns over a nation to itself, that is, judicial abandonment, he leaves them to themselves, they will do, the scripture says, unseemly things with their body. Romans 1 verse 26, they will do what is not natural. 
women with women, men with men, committing indecent acts, that which is contrary to nature, and then we read in verse 28, they can no longer even think straight. Why? Because God turns them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, natural. That is precisely where our culture is. In less than a decade, they have legalized homosexual marriage. You know, and this whole legalization of pot, so ridiculous. You, you can't go anywhere nowadays without people milling around, stoned out of their gourd. You see this? Now, although godlessness is indeed being ordained by the state, its iniquities defined as being normal, okay, they, those people, those people, groups, though they may hate us for the message, remember this, they're not the enemy. They're the mission field. We don't hate them. They're the mission field. So, let us remember something. Look, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 6. Verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, now, don't, don't miss these words. Do not be deceived, church. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Not, not, not the act in and of itself, but if, if this characterizes who you are and what you are, do not be deceived. You're not going to heaven. Don't, don't be deceived, okay? But, but notice... Verse 11, such were some of you, church, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. The church, in other words, is made up of sinners of all stripes who've come out of lifestyles as defined there. Someone who was given to homosexuality, I'll just tell you that was never a temptation for me. For others, it has been. For others who lived a life like that and they come to Christ, they may face that temptation the rest of their life, but they've been washed and sanctified and justified. You'll still face temptations, no doubt, as with any other sin. So the inclinations of my heart weren't behaviors like that, but other things like, like pride and anger and I could go on. But such were. Some of you, here's the church. Now, having said that, beloved, having said that, we, the church, are not to accommodate, we, the church, are not to accept and adopt their worldview because deferring to them in their agenda is not how you minister to or reach them with the gospel. It doesn't work that way. Many churches are deferring 
to them. That's an anxiety I have. That's a concern I have. I have a certain anxiety within me that many places who bear the name churches, buildings, they bear the name church, are deferring to culture out of fear, the fear of man, the fear of being accused of being a hater. Man, certain individuals I know once were these servants of Christ who walked by faith, who declared to love the Lord, they are so far gone, some of them into apostasy, that they, they, they now, you know, at one time declared Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and now they declare all roads lead to God. That's an anxiety I have. People who are, they're either so terribly backslidden or they were never saved in the first place, promote themselves on social media. How do I know this? Other brothers and sisters come to me and say, so-and-so is promoting themselves on Facebook, and they said this. Someone who was a leader in the church. That's an anxiety that I have. Now, knowing as we do that the Lord will build his church, do you build the church? Do I build the church? No. The Lord said, I will build my church. We read this morning. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That does not mean that we throw our hands in the air and wave them like we just don't care. For real, amen? No, we do not. We live in a culture full of lies. The government lies. Universities lie, the media lies, and under the pressure of fall in line or else, much of the professing church has become liars. That causes anxiety within me. Because what they do is they submit to thinking that was conveyed in a recent article that appeared in US Today written by one Oliver Thomas, USA Today, I think early April. I pulled this from Al Mohler's website. It reads, quote, now listen carefully. American churches must reject literalism and admit we got it wrong on gay people. Now the article begins with this provocative statement. Churches will continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. The source of the church's error, Thomas argues, clearly is not a misinterpretation of the scriptures. Rather, the Bible got it wrong. The biblical authors were bound by time, culture, and an antiquated worldview that wrongly encumbered and vilified homosexual behavior. Moeller says, quote, the impetus of Thomas's charge is moral. The Bible does not correspond to his moral and ethical worldview, which celebrates the entire array of the LGBTQ spectrum. The sexual revolution has no compatibility 
with the Bible, so the scriptures must be tossed out as erroneous artifacts of a bygone age, end of quote. Thomas's article ends with a question. Quote, what does loving my neighbor and my enemy as myself look like today? Moeller responds, it looks like not withholding the words of eternal life. End quote. Friends, when the church, the, the places called church, refuse to address the holiness of God and the penalty of sin that is due, we become liars. Like our culture. Liars. Fact is, there's no excuse for sin that will stand on the day of judgment. No excuse for one's lifestyle that will stand before holy God on the day of judgment. So to stand before God and to think you, to think you will say, but you made me like this, that won't stand. That won't stand. There'll be no excuses acceptable to holy almighty God. All there is, is a covering that's provided for sinners like you and me. A covering. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ by his shed blood when he went to Calvary's cross. That's the only thing accepted. Those covered by the Lamb of God. Provided through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are to declare that truth. We, we hold the, the words of eternal life. Messengers of truth. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy, in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of what? The truth. The truth. So Paul's anxiety, friends, was godly anxiety concerned with God's truth, his kingdom, and his people. The message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question is, shouldn't we, the church, have anxiety over things like this? Certainly, we should. If not, if not, might it be a matter of being so self-consumed that there is never any anxiety for what goes on in the church until, until my pride is struck, perhaps by some message or some applicable point, and I get all ruffled under my collar, and, and, and I disappear for three months. That's the only concern I have. That is immaturity. Paul's anxiety for the church is incredibly mature. It's so like Christ. So are you an anxious person about the right things or the wrong things? Is your concern over the kingdom of Christ or your kingdom? Do you pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done? Or do you, you'd never admit this, you pray, my kingdom come, my will be done, or I'll be done with this place. 
So when the concern is, Lord, your kingdom come, you're concerned with what sin does to destroy relationships. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You're concerned about God's people being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. This concerns you. You know that Satan does indeed seek to devour the people of God. He, he wants to divide and conquer from within, to cause division. A concern which is godly. So what do your emotions reveal to be most important to you? Do you have a healthy anxiety for things concerning Christ's church? Now, the reason I say this today is when we move, is because when we move into 1 Corinthians, you're going to see Paul address many a situation within the church. And that is the church of Corinth attempting to adopt practices from culture into the church over and over again. So do you have healthy anxiety for things concerning the church or everything else but the church? Turn back again to Philippians. Look again, chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer. Prayer. So, anxiety, okay, which is incompatible with trusting God, God knows this, so by way of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he provides an antidote. Prayer. Prayer is the antidote for wrong kinds of anxiety, worry, and notice, with thanksgiving, make your request be made known. May we be thankful. With thanksgiving, which increases confidence in God's will for our lives. Prayer, an antidote to the wrong kind of anxiety. We may not fully comprehend what God is doing in and through, through our lives, but he provides personal peaceful experience for God's people. I, I have to remind myself, uh, yesterday, you know, I have all this in my mind, so I'm walking around my house and I'm thinking about certain things going on and I, I just say, please, please, please. I, I, literally, I do this all the time. Lord, please, please. And I'm thinking about this person, that person. I'm thinking about my kids. They live up here. I'm like, Lord, please, please, please. And I'm like, Lord, <clears throat> And I'm just honest, and I say, I don't know if I'm just trying to cover all my bases, and I got some skewed theology in my head thinking that if I just do this, you'll bless me. I know better than that objectively, but help me subjectively. Help me subjectively. I know the objective truth. I can preach it all day long. And then subjectively, when the rubber meets the road, I'm given to subjectivity instead of objectivity, facts. So I do this. <laughs> be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Applicable to all. And it begins with this guy first. But here, Paul's concern, notice, Paul's concern, Paul said this, I consider my life 
as no value, but only that I finish the race God has assigned to me. The apostle Paul, the apostle of the church of Jesus Christ. Let's take it one step further. The Lord Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane. You want to talk about anxiety? Paul's life was given to the church because he was Christ's. So he has healthy anxiety. Jesus in the garden, sweating great drops of blood with intense anxiety to say the least. Because he was about to go to the darkest place imaginable for others. His church, his bride. He would be hung upon the cross and the horrors of hell would descend upon him as the father would turn his face from him for the first and only time. The eternal son of God. The father would turn his face from his son so that he would bear the wrath of God against sin and sinners. He was filled with anxiety, sorrowful, he said, to the point of death about what he was going to do for his church. He loved his bride. Jesus prayed before he went to the garden. John 17, he said in his prayer to the Father, Father, I pray for those you have given me from out of the world that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that what? So that the world may know that you have sent me. Does our message change? When you're pressured by culture, does the message change? So in light of Paul's example, in light of our Lord's example, are you anxious about the right things or the wrong things? Before we transition into our study of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Is it the kingdom of God or is it your kingdom? I ask you, I've asked myself. Lord, change my heart for the glory of your name, the good of your people church. Now, if your vision has been skewed, if your vision is off, if your locus of focus is way out in the wilderness, look to Christ, who, Hebrews 12, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Easy to lose heart. It's easy to become weary. Let us look to Christ and be renewed in spirit with a love for him and a love for what he loves his church, his body, you, the body of Christ. That's for the believer. If you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have something to worry about. 
you have something to be incredibly anxious about, full of anxiety with regard to your situation because you have turned your back on him. All judgments have been given to the son. You die outside of him, you will bear his wrath for eternity. That's hell. The good news is, repent, come unto me, said Jesus, come unto me, come to me, and I will give you life. Repent and believe. Don't turn your back on him. Turn and face him. Confess your sins, repent, and walk with him the rest of your life so that by grace you can see, Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? God bless his word to your heart. Father, we do thank you for these words of encouragement. Help us to live them out. Lord, we are weak. So help us by the resident presence of your spirit um, to take these things, apply them to our lives, to have a concern for what you love most, and that's your bride, the church. As we look to you and as we minister to one another for the glory of the name above all names, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Let's stand and sing before we got this morning.